You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. Previously on Family Ghosts. Do you remember what your parents would say when you would ask them about volcanoes? And Don't worry it about it. Don't worry about it. That would never happen here. That, that doesn't happen in Maryland. Now I'm remembering, like, the missing persons flyer. Uh, and I'm thinking, how tall, how tall was my father listed on his missing persons flyer? He would call around 8 o'clock and say that he was on his way home, and uh, then he would come home. He called every night, and he came home every night. I woke up, and my mother was sitting at the foot of the bed, uh, looking very freaked out. She said, Dad didn't come home last night. My father had dropped off the face of the earth. I remember my sister saying, like, do you think Uncle Augie had something to do with it, or did Uncle Augie do something to Dad? There was this big fight, and it was about money. Suddenly there was a a reason for why he might have disappeared. I probably had never so much wanted to know about something in my whole life. And no one would tell me anything. From WALTFM, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman. And, you know, when I work on stories like the one we're in the midst of telling you, I spend a lot of time sitting and listening to someone tell me that story. And as I listen, I make little notes to myself. And as I was going through the notes that I took on the tape we're using for this week's show, I found this one note that didn't make any sense. I had written in the margins of my notebook, Snake Hill! Exclamation point. Now, try as I might, Ghost Family, I could not for the life of me figure out what I meant by Snake Hill. And so I did what I often do when I get hung up on the script for an episode of the show. I went for a run. And I'm on the treadmill, and I'm listening to Connor Oberst and the Mystic Valley Band, and I get to the last song of their album, Outer South. And that song is called Snake Hill. Serendipity. And as it plays, I am reminded of my favorite line from that song. Poison will be poison till it's through. And just like that, I remember why I wrote Snake Hill! Exclamation point in my notebook as I listened to Kate Crane tell the story of the mysterious disappearance back in 1987 of her father, Eddie Crane. I'm pretty sure I wrote it down right around the time Kate said this. The image that comes to mind is of uh, one of his old Nikon cameras. My mom had his cameras for years and would not give them to me. And eventually when she gave me his cameras, there was this one uh, Nikon N2020. He had bought that camera the week he disappeared. And my mom put that camera in a closet and she, she didn't realize it had batteries in it. So when she finally gave me the camera and I opened up the back battery acid was everywhere. It's just this like creepy, toxic powder. Some film friend helped me clean it all out, but said there's definitely still battery acid in the inside of that camera. And even if it's just a little bit, it's going to continue eating away 
at the camera. And that's how I felt that what had happened to my father was inside of me and it was eating me from the inside out. This week on part two of Kate's story, a poison and its antidote. That's coming up after the break. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Family Ghosts. As you may recall from the end of part one of Kate's story, after high school, she wanted to get away from Baltimore, where the unsolved mystery of her father's disappearance felt ever-present. And one day, riding in the car with her friend Jess, Kate discovered an unexpected ticket out of town. Jess drove this old Buick that his parents had given him um, that had, like, PETA stickers on the back of it. I remember one day us driving in the car and him playing a cassette on the tape deck. And I loved what whatever was on this stereo. I had such a sense of inferiority about Jess. I remember trying to play it cool and being like, oh, is, uh, are you listening to U2? <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and he was like, no, that's, that's the hated. And I was like, the hated? Like, what's the hated? And uh, it just was an iconic Maryland punk band that was uh, early in that branch of music that people call emo. So it was, it was hardcore punk music, but um, very melodic. Just these songs about existential crises and heartache. And I mean, I was sold. And so I started to go to shows with Jess and then eventually um, found my own group of friends and, and the DC punk scene became my life for the next few years. It's tempting for me in hearing the, the way that you've been talking about a lot of this stuff to imagine that this music that was such an open conduit to like expressing emotion and like talking about the hard things, I can imagine that must have been really appealing. Was that the draw? Yes, and also uh, the the punk scene in the 90s had a lot of different branches. Uh, and some bands were very much about fashion and being in the scene. Uh, but then there was this whole other side of it that was explicitly political. And the politics were very, very aggressively feminist. And the cultural phenomenon called Riot Girl, I was part of that. So you had bands that are fairly well known like Bikini Kill and Slater Kinney and super dyke bands like Team Dresh and hardcore feminist bands like Spitboy. I really developed a sense of self as a woman through the feminism in that music scene. In the mid-90s, a lot of kids in the punk scene were converging on a Washington, D.C. neighborhood called Mount Pleasant, which, incidentally, is possibly the least punk name imaginable. Around this time, Kate's friend Brad told her about a group house in Mount Pleasant called Positive Force. It had been established by a local author and activist named Mark Anderson. And Mark lived at the house, and even by the time I lived there, like 150 people had lived in that house. 
Kate's friend Brad was one of those 150 people, and he had a word of caution for Kate as she was considering moving in at positive force. Brad said to me, if you need to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, you have to jump from the door frame to the toilet because if you step on the floor, you'll you'll go plunging down to... Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> and, and he wasn't joking. So it was very rickety. But this uh, little ground floor room had opened up. And I think it was my first time living away from my mother's house. I had this fairy tale belief that punk could be family and that uh like I had found I had found a family. Kate's early days in the punk scene were going great. She had an internship in DC, she was going to shows at night with her friends and volunteering at an anarchist bookshop. But before long, things took a turn. At some point in, like, winter of 95, I wasn't showing up at my internship anymore, and uh, I essentially didn't get out of bed for three months. I stopped eating, and I slept all the time. Um, All this time later, I still get edgy when I take naps a little bit, because I slept for three months. People in that scene and generally are not so comfortable with trauma and mental illness. And my roommates didn't know how to handle that. And Mark had spent some time in Latin America and had, I think, seen or or knew about some super, super horrible things. And he was frustrated with me as he just thought I was this privileged kid who couldn't, like, be a grown-up my sense that family was just out there for me to like go find and replace that fell apart when uh, I had the major depression the kind of sick I was is too much for you know a bunch of 20 year olds to handle thankfully Kate was able to find a psychiatrist who helped her start to climb out of the hole she'd fallen into And Kate realized she needed a new place to live. I was a barista at a coffee shop, and there was a baker there named Jane. And uh, Jane's like, oh, my friend Harold has a room in his house. And this was another house of uh, weirdos and eccentrics. And technically in Baltimore City, but not, not far from the county line. And Harold had just bought the house from his landlord for like $40,000. And... He had a beard down to his chest, and he worked on Volkswagens, but only bugs and buses. So the the teeny, teeny, tiny little street he lived on, and his backyard was always full of old Volkswagen bugs and buses. And he had this dog named Gypsy. She would just run around Baltimore, and people in Volkswagen buses would be like, oh, hey, Gypsy, want to ride home? I moved into Harold's in June, so I was still really wobbly, and uh, I spent much of that summer reading the Lord of the Rings books on his back porch and hanging out with Gypsy. 
he had a huge garden in the backyard near where he worked on the bugs and the buses. And Gypsy would walk through the garden and eat green beans and other vegetables right off the vines. I hung out with all these, like, very strange people. And Harold had a lot of weird friends. And I did a lot of sitting in the kitchen, talking to Harold and his friends. I thought about my dad all the time, and I didn't talk about him to anyone. I kept him a secret. I felt this intense sense of shame because I think in my mind, if your parent can be disappeared off the face of the earth and no one cares, then something must be profoundly wrong. Like there must be some family level illness or like we were we were marked in some way it is striking to me that you know during this period where you went back to baltimore you didn't go back to live with your mom it's so interesting because you you've mentioned that before and and i find myself sort of flinching because Like, the thought wouldn't even cross my mind. I couldn't be there. It felt stifling. I could never escape the feeling of sadness and also the feeling that that life had kind of stopped in 1987. The house didn't really change. It was, like, the exact same place as it was when my father first disappeared. And my mother had withdrawn to a significant degree from the world and all of it just made me so sad that I had pretty extreme anxiety every time I went there. So living there was not an option. After a few months, Kate re-enrolled in college and slowly began the process of nursing herself back to health. Harold tried to keep the heat no higher than 50. So we would put plastic over all the windows. And I remember spending a lot of time that first winter in my bedroom with plastic over all the windows, sitting in a rocking chair reading The Waves and to the lighthouse and Mrs. Dalloway and really feeling like I was um, coming back, maybe not even coming back to life, but finding life through literature. Kate spent two years at Harold's house, which, in a detail that's almost too good to be true, was located on a street called Reddy Avenue. There were two housemates when I first moved in, and I remember the name of one, Kurt, because he was the one with the butcher knife and the moth. And I don't remember the name of the other one, who did not ever uh, impale animals on our kitchen table with a butcher knife. But when that guy moved out to, like, move in with his fiancée or his girlfriend, he said, you move into Reddy Avenue to get ready, and then you leave. And that's exactly what Kate did. By the fall of 1998, she had moved out of Baltimore once and for all. I was living in Brooklyn, in Williamsburg, on Metropolitan Avenue, I lived with my girlfriend at the time that I had moved to New York with. 
And every Friday night we watched the television show that was based on David Simon's book. The show was called Homicide, Life on the Streets, and it had been adapted from David Simon's best-selling nonfiction book about the year Simon spent embedded with Baltimore homicide detectives. Now, remember, back in 1992, David Simon had showed up at Kate's family's house asking questions for an article he wanted to write about Eddie's case, which he'd heard about during that year he spent researching his book. When Kate read the article, it was the first time she got any details about her father's disappearance in 1987, like the argument he'd had with his former business partner about money, and a series of bloodstains and bullet holes that police found in Eddie's office in Curtis Bay. At the time, Kate was grateful to finally have some clues about whatever happened to her father. But when the article was published, she was also just about to graduate from high school and finally starting to put the whole thing behind her. And now, six years later, she was in a similar headspace that night in Brooklyn when she turned on the TV. And I'm watching this television show about homicide detectives in Baltimore. Let's get over to Everett's office. It's the last place he was known to be alive. Well, we checked it twice already. It sort of started ringing weird bells in my head when I was like, oh, businessman in Baltimore, he, he didn't come home. But I thought, oh, it's just a coincidence. And there's a scene where a couple of detectives are in the office and, and they're saying, there's no crime scene here. There is nothing out of the ordinary in this office. There is no blood, no bullet holes, no sign of a struggle. No chair. What? And I suddenly realized that it's my dad's story happening on the TV screen. And I, I did freak out. Like, how do you process that? And I remember yelling at the television, look at the desk. There are bullet holes in the desk. You clean it. Leather cleans up easy. And, you know, like two seconds later. A bullet hole. A bullet hole. It, it, if you put a couple of slugs in that chair, bingo. This is the scene. They killed him here at his own desk. Yeah. But who's they? It was super surreal. If I'm understanding you right, you see this episode at a time in your life when you still think about your dad, but you're not really talking to other people about it very much, or it's not a part of your Correct. exterior life. So Very much. I hid it. Mm-hmm. So what was it like to as somebody who was trying to hide your dad's story, have it told on national television. <laughs> I felt like I've, I had the sense that I can't get away from it. I left Baltimore. I was in New York City. My dad wasn't supposed to be able to find me in New York City. And here he is on the TV screen. Kate shut off the TV and tried again to move on. She started working as a journalist, writing about music and editing articles about personal finance. But her father's ghost wouldn't leave her alone. A few years after the homicide incident, she tried moving again and settled into a new place in New Jersey. And in yet another twist that you simply couldn't invent, this new apartment was on a street called Erie Street. For real. 
Every summer, I would start having a lot of um, emotional turbulence in the summer, in the months leading up to September. Knowing that the anniversary of my father's death was coming. And anniversaries have power, they just do. In July 2007, I realized that September 2007 would be 20 years since he had disappeared. And I remember being in that apartment on uh, Erie Street in Jersey City and thinking, it was like an alarm clock went off. The 20 year point felt very, very significant. And I think in the back of my mind, I had continued to delude myself that quote unquote people were quote unquote working on my dad's case. And then I thought it's gonna be 20 years. Like are these people uh, alive? Uh, Have they retired? Um, Does anyone even still remember my dad? And I thought, no one else has done anything. I have to do something. I could not picture a future for myself. And I couldn't relate to happiness. I just didn't know how to access that. And I felt like what had happened to him, which also happened to me and my mother and my sister, was eating me from the inside out. And all of a sudden I felt like, if I don't do something about it, I'm not gonna survive. And I thought, I don't wanna become a detective, but I thought I'm a writer at this point and I can, I can tell his story. That was the thing that I could do. Family Ghosts will continue in a moment. Welcome back to Family Ghosts. Before the break, Kate told us she had had enough of other people telling, or not telling, her father's story. I called the cold case unit at the Baltimore City Police Department. And I stammered a lot and I said that I was writing about my dad's murder. And there was this gruff man on the other end of the line who had a thick Baltimore accent. And he said, well, who's your dad? And I said, Eddie Crane. And he said, that's not a murder case, that's a missing persons case. Just didn't miss a beat. And I was speechless. The guy on the phone was named Donald Warden. He was actually retired from the Baltimore Homicide Unit, but was still moonlighting with the cold case crew. That seemed a little odd to Kate at first, until she did some research on him and found out that Donald Warden is one of those detectives who never really stops being a detective, even after he takes off the badge. Warden was basically the Sherlock Holmes of the Baltimore City Homicide Division. I think people called him the big man or the big guy. He's just solid. He's, he's solid as a human being, physically like a wall. And he projects integrity and uh, intelligence and 
attentiveness. He, that man does not miss anything. He watches and listens and perceives on a level that is very unusual. And he hadn't been one of the lead detectives on my father's case, but he was definitely part of it. And so I went and spent some time regularly, both with Donald Warden and Sergeant Roger Nolan. They said that they had never forgotten about it and uh, that they, they would try to see if there was something they could still do. So all of a sudden I was, you know, spending my days editing personal finance journalism for the Wall Street Journal's monthly personal finance magazine and also trying to work with these cold case detectives to figure out what might have happened to my father. And so Kate started making regular trips down to Baltimore to meet with Warden and Nolan. But as time went on, it became clear that not even Sherlock Holmes could find Kate's father. Although that wasn't entirely his fault. Part of the reason this couldn't go anywhere is that the evidence had been destroyed. Roger Nolan called me uh, in New York one day and he said, uh, I hate to tell you this, but the evidence in your father's case is gone. There was a warehouse or a building of some sort in Baltimore where boxes of old evidence were stored and it flooded. So it wasn't just my dad's case. It was hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, boxes of evidence were destroyed by water. They had found a skull in, like, spring of 1988. And they had had a reconstruction done of the skull. And they showed me pictures, and, and, like, it sure did look like my dad. So the detective said, let's try to write letters to the medical examiner's office in, I think it was West Virginia, to try to figure out what happened to this skull. And then we could get run DNA on it. And... I did write that letter and never heard from the medical examiner's office. I just want to make sure I'm understanding this moment because it seems really remarkable, this thing that happens, which is that you call up the Baltimore Police Department. You're on the phone with Donald Warden and eventually get in touch with Roger Nolan. They say to you, yes, you know, we would like to figure this out. It's been too long. we got to figure out what happened, except there's actually nothing we can really do because the evidence is gone. Yes, that happened over the course of several months. Roger Nolan, once he walked me, like like I left and he walked me to the front door of the building or the back door, wherever I was leaving. And, uh, and he looked at me and he said, you lost your father and not much was done about it. And, and we sit around this office sometimes and we We wonder whatever happened to Eddie Crane. There was one Christmas that I came to Baltimore and I was going to interview uh, Detective Ed Brown, who was one of the lead detectives on my dad's case. And so I did that interview with him and I was also going to meet with Sergeant Nolan and Detective Warden. And 
I wanted to see Harold. I, I loved Harold. Um, so I park on Ready Avenue and I go up to the front door and I probably was going to just let myself in because that's, that's how you do things at Harold's. And I, I got to the front door and the front door had this bumper sticker on it that said, don't eat them animals. And then all of a sudden Harold's like whooshing up behind me. He's like, Hey Kate, what are you doing? Like as if, you know, I had just been there the day before or I had made an appointment with him or something. And he just let me in and I went in and sat in the kitchen and we were chatting and I told him why I was in Baltimore and he said, uh, that's right. Uh, I remember you talking to me about your dad at some point. Um, where was that business again? And I said, Curtis Bay. And he said, oh, I used to rent some land from a guy who rented some land from a guy and Harold would like store car parts down there. And he said, I should ask that friend of mine about your dad sometimes. And the phone rang. And Harold got up and he went into the other room and it sounded like he was getting bad news. And then he said, oh, my friend Kate's here, Kate Crane. Uh, her, her dad used to have a business down in Curtis Bay. And I could see him standing in the doorway between the kitchen and the dining room, and he still had that, like, big curly black fro and big beard, and he looked like he had stuck his finger in uh, an electric socket. He just did this whole body jolt and looked at me and shoved the phone at me. And he said uh, it was the friend that he had just told me about two seconds before. That's who had called. If I wrote this as fiction, it would be really, really bad fiction. And he said, you talk to him. And he shoved the phone at me and like walked out the back door and slammed the door. And I was like, hi, I'm Kate Crane. Uh, did you know my dad? And uh, this guy says to me, oh yeah, hon. And people put your father's body in a wall. He said that um, there were some Curtis Bay lowlifes who, um, when they would go drinking, they would brag about participating in my dad's murder and that uh, one of them would say that he had uh, put my, my dad's body in a retaining wall near the business in Curtis Bay. And it did make me want to go find the wall. I, I at least wanted to see it. But also, at this point, it had been about five years since I started this aimless project that you know, my mother didn't want me to do this, meaning to ask questions. And my uncle, my dad's brother, who worked at the business, he didn't want me asking questions. My sister definitely didn't. And so I was going against the wishes of my entire family, what, what re remained of it. And... And what was I doing? Kate didn't have an answer to her own question. But before she gave up on the search, she realized there was still one call that until this point, she'd been too scared to make. I had wanted to try to call Augie. And I looked up the phone number, or what I thought was the phone number. And 
got a recording device that I could hook up to my phone at Smart Money and called this number that I thought was uh, Augie's house from, you know, my office on Broadway and 57th Street or whatever. man comes back with a piece of paper, and Kate gives him her cell phone number. Five, two? Seven, nine. Seven, nine, and you're? Kate. Kate? And could you, can I leave a message? Yeah. Just, could you just tell him that, um, I don't want to ask any upsetting or difficult questions. I honestly just want to know what he remembers about my dad, because no one will talk to me. My mom won't, my uncle won't. And I think he's the one person who probably remembers my father, and I didn't. I didn't know him, so um, I know it seems extremely probably odd, <laughs> and, you know, I understand that it seems odd, but, um, you know, I'm a grown-up now, and and no one will talk to me, and I remember Augie fondly from when I was a child, Right. and um, so I don't need to know about September 87, or... But really, you don't want to know about 87, because what you would hear, you wouldn't like. And he, you know, shockingly didn't return my phone call. Next time on Family Ghosts, we bring you the final chapter of Kate's story. I knew I I had set off on the right path, and I did feel that I had probably saved my own life by going off and asking questions and trying to write about it. But I also felt like, why, why do I have to do this? And I didn't know how to talk about it, and I didn't know how to not talk about it. I didn't want to be alone with my dad indefinitely. It did feel like being alone with this mysteriously dead person who, whether he meant this or not, he left me. And I was, like, stuck alone with this man who left me. Kate decides whether or not she really wants to know what's behind that wall in Curtis Bay. And he said, oh, you know you've got to go knock down that wall, right? And I thought, no. (laughs) Not if I don't want to, I don't. 
That's coming up in two weeks, right here on Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted. Family Ghosts is hosted, produced, and written by me, Sam Dingman. Special thanks this week to Michaela Bly, Najib Amini, Adrian Bain, and of course, to Kate Crane. Our show art is by Teddy Blanks, and our theme song is by Louis Guerra. This show is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Kindred Spirits, our community of supporters on Patreon. For just $5 a month, Kindred Spirits get early access to all of our episodes, hear them ad-free, and they also get exclusive bonus content not available anywhere else. The work we do here at WALT-FM wouldn't be possible without them. So if you have the means, please consider becoming a member at patreon.com familyghosts. We'll be back in two weeks with the final chapter of Kate's story. Thank you for listening, Ghost Family. I'll talk to you then.